Now, the last week, we looked at Psalm 139. Uh, a psalm that if you're not familiar with it, that's what Sundays are for, to read yourself rich. And in Psalm 139, we're reminded in a way that a few people found a bit odd uh, for us to be talking about in church, just how wonderful you are. And in fact, in the evening service, when I was talking about the fact that we are fundamentally and essentially good, I saw some very thoughtful young people just shaking their heads, thinking that we'd lost the plot. Understandably, because Christians have spent a lot of time trying to balance our culture's optimism that we've had for the last hundred years of the perfectibility of humans. How we are really heading to some terrifically near-perfect times was predicted by a number of leading politicians at the beginning of the 20th century, both English and American. They said we wouldn't quite arrive at paradise, but we'd get mighty flipping close. And then the 20th century happened. And Christians have often saying, no, no. Well, as, as Psalm 139 says, we are wonderfully, fearfully made. We're one of the most magnificent things in the universe made by God. And yet, he goes from that in verse 13 and other places down to speaking about the wicked and those who hate God and those who oppress people. So he goes from how wonderful we are to how awful we can be. And he finishes with this prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way that is everlasting. So this Psalm 139, like so much of the Bible, it has this terrific balance, which we find hard to hold together, of the magnificence of humans and yet the reality of evil, oppressive evil, and the reality of evil inside our own hearts. And he finishes with that prayer, God, search me out and find the, the offensive ways in me. So he's, he's aware that there can be things in him, even as he's praying, in the way that he thinks and plans and organises himself, that may well be offensive to the God who knows us. So let's pray that we would, uh, in these few minutes together, get this sort of balance right and be realists and have a way of understanding the world and ourselves that is in touch with how things are so we can live well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know from so many parts of your words that your ways are not our ways. Uh, they're better, higher, different. We do pray for the help of your Holy Spirit to help me to speak clearly. We pray for the kids as they're learning. Uh, we ask that you would reveal your truth to us and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this has been quite a week for me personally. I don't know about you. Let's see if we can get these slides going. This particular drawing of these two people walking down a street, and one of them is saying, my desire to be well informed is currently at odds with my desire to remain sane. And uh, sometimes we do need to moderate how much news we listen to and watch, particularly when so much of it we can do nothing about but it will throw us into turmoil if we have a heart or it'll harden our hearts as we get used to hearing horror after horror and doing nothing. This 
for me, was a week like that. I found myself a few times getting a little teary, just telling various stories. I think one thing on top of the other, the sadness that so many people have felt after the referendum, the horrors of some of the stuff going on in various countries that we get told about. And then I was informed uh, early in the week about a young man who I knew and, and liked, and I'd known him as he became an adult. I met him at school that he had uh, killed himself and um, driven to the place where he killed himself in an extraordinary European sports car and left the message for his wife and daughter and for his boss, just sent them messages. A really, I mean, I've actually used this guy as an illustration of good things in times past. And yet, who knows how much pain there was before that and now for his wife, his daughter, his mother, just unthinkable. And all sorts of other things that we've heard about this week. And I've just found myself getting a little bit uh, teary at times. The, the world is a mess, isn't it, really? And you can understand people saying, eh, how are we supposed to believe in a God who made everything when the, the place is so awful? All things bright and beautiful, yeah. But there's also many terrible things. And that's why some people, including some of the finest Bible teachers I know, suggest that Genesis 3 the part that, we, that Michael read for us is, well, at least one man who I respect said it's the most important chapter in the Bible. I don't know how you work that out. Um, but certainly, if you don't get what God is saying to us in Genesis 3, you won't get the rest of the story. And the world does not make sense because it is so dreadfully broken. A bit like Psalm 139, where David can go, we are wonderfully broken beautifully, magnificently made, and yet there's the wicked, and yet there's a wickedness in my own heart that I can't necessarily detect. Search me and find out for me. Help me see myself as I am. So we can look at this other part. Last week we looked at the wonder of us being made by God. We are his handiwork. We're a masterpiece, and yet, in a sense, we've been vandalised. Like a magnificent body that's been dreadfully infected by a disease. Much continues to work, much is broken. Now the word that is used um, is, uh, this fellow here, okay, I want to mention Ken and mention Gloria later on. This is the guy who was the minister at the first church I went to when I was a young Christian. And I remember a point he made after church just in coffee. And I tend to remember things that I don't agree with or I think are silly. And um, he said, that he thought every misunderstanding of Christianity has at its root and source a misunderstanding or a trivialization of sin. I thought, well, that's a very big claim. And I mention it because I think it's probably close to the truth. It's very difficult to make any sense of the rest of the Bible if you don't realize that something dreadful has entered the beauty of God's creation and it's impacted us impacted our families, our schooling systems, our society, world history. But most people have a small or a diminished view and sometimes a slightly twisted view of what sin is. So we're going to look at that for a little bit today. What do we mean? What do, well, in a sense, who cares what we mean? What does God mean when he speaks to us of sin? Now, the first time the word sin is used in the Bible is it's on the lips of God himself. It's not in the Garden of Eden story and that dreadful uh, account in, that we heard in Genesis 3. It's in Genesis 4. 
That's Cain and Abel, the first two baby boys that were born on the planet to Adam and Eve. And um, God is speaking to Cain, and this is what he says. Oh, well, that's an interesting quote. We'll come back to that. The Lord said to Cain, he's the firstborn human, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You must rule it. You must master it. So the first time sin is mentioned, it's not mentioned in a, in a sort of a nice, simple, moral sense, doing naughty things, doing less than ideal things. Sin here is pictured as, a, as an animal, as a hunter, waiting, ready, eyes fixed on the prey. It's got one intent, and it's just all its muscles are ready to move. That's the picture. Sin is crouching at the door. It's a power at work. And its, its intent is to demolish and to destroy. There's no doubt about what it's up to. It's a hunter. And this is an interesting picture. I don't know if you've ever thought of your life as living with sin crouching at the door. That there is a, a power, not just a moral mistake, at work seeking to master you. And this is the way that the Bible consistently sees sin. Uh, it's deadly and it's tricky. So this is the picture. And you know what Cain does is, Cain does not take God seriously. Sin does claim him, devour him, leads to death, bloodshed, horror. Uh, this is what happens. So this is the, the picture that God says, the Lord said, sin is crouching at the door. I don't, do you see sin as a dangerous animal or just a sort of a, an interesting option? Perhaps a troublesome option. Well, God wants us to know that it, it is a deadly force with eternal consequences. Because in the end, its desire is to have us, to own us, to control us, to take us down. It is not a joke. And this is very serious, isn't it? Very serious view of sin. Um, but because you go, we, of course, as uh, Christian people, we want to see what Jesus says. And do listen to what Jesus says here about sin. What do you think he's on about? He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, that is to stumble and sin, that's what he's talking about in that context. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Now, you'll notice through Christian history, even amongst the keenest Christians, most Christians are not roaming around missing eyes and hands. Because to take Jesus seriously here is not to take him in some dumb, literalistic way. There's a very powerful hyperbole he's saying, I really want you to understand something. That even if something is good, like your hand or your eye, if it causes you or leads you to sin, get rid of it. Leave it. Flee. It's deadly because according to Jesus, if you sin, the consequences are terrible. Now, again, I want to stress this is not the medieval church trying to frighten the peasants so they can rip money off from them. This is Jesus Christ himself. He shares exactly the same view as his father does when he says sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now, where does the problem come from? And this is one of the areas where Jesus and his people will tend to differ from the cultures in which we live, certainly our own culture. This particular verse from Jeremiah 17 reminds us that the source of our real problem is inside, not outside. 
Uh, you'll hear many people speak about it. It's true as a general thing. I got in trouble for saying this once at a church. Hurt people hurt people. And the person who was unhappy with that was a person who had been very badly hurt. And I thought she did hurt people um, like me because she really ripped into me. Hurt, and I'm not saying if you're hurt, you are going to be a demolisher of people. We actually work backwards on that. We think if someone's done something terrible, they've probably had something terrible done to them. This is the mantra of our culture. So if you're, if you're not going, well, tell me about your childhood. Uh, even though that has been seriously challenged by a number of psychologists who've done the sort of the, the systematic checking on the, the links between child, various childhood trauma and adult dysfunction. But that's, that's, there's a truth in it. But what Jesus is saying is, our problem is inside ourselves more than anything, how we process things, for example. So, that, so Jeremiah, the prophet, says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? So that's why the modern mantra that we've had in our culture for, for quite some time, but it's become really very explicit in the last decades, that says, follow your heart. Right? If your heart tells you it's okay, I won't quote you some of the foolishness in some movies where even if a thing is completely mad, if your heart tells you to do it, you just do it. That is the Walt Disney Doctrine. It's expressive individualism. It is your moral duty to be faithful to your heart, no matter how much it hurts your family or anybody else. And even if you're a pig that wants to be a dog, you can do it, baby. Just believe in it and do it. In fact, you can probably do it better than the dogs. And this is the thing which we are taught. Now, of course, there's a truth in that. You do need to work out what, you know, in all sorts of things, what do you really want to do? But the notion that you should follow your heart is a notion that the Bible simply thinks is deadly. Your heart is deceitful, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, when Jesus has that view, when Jeremiah has that view, he shares it with Jesus. So in Mark chapter 7, whoop, Jesus says this, What comes out of a man is what defiles a person. For from within... Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within. So what the prophets say and what Jesus Christ says is the problem of wickedness and the source of the ultimate brokenness in our community comes from within. Right? Now, of course, we are victims of other people's wickedness. That's certainly true. But Jesus doesn't say all the problems, and this is where Christianity fundamentally is in disagreement, say, with Karl Marx and the arguments I used to have at Sydney Uni in my one year there with the Marxists, because they believe the problem for people is out there. It's in the social and economic systems. So if we change those, we'll all be okay. We can hit utopia. And yet, sadly, I don't think there's been any system of government that has killed more of its own citizens than Marxism and communism. Right? Stalin killed many more of his people than Hitler killed in the gas chambers. Many more. His own people. Mao Zedong, similarly. That Mao Zedong and people like that were heroes when I was at uni. is ridiculous. He was a murderous horror. 20 or 30 million of his own people on the road to utopia. They just think we just need to change enough stuff out there. And if we just change enough stuff out there, then we'll arrive at utopia. As one ex-atheist who'd done a lot of travelling around the world said, the island of utopia is arrived at over a sea of blood. 
And that has been the case. Uh, because if you see the problem is out there, no, 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 Jesus says the problem is here. I'm the problem. You will know the famous, or some of you will know the famous story of G.K. Chesterton. And the Times in London was asking key people, you know, well-known academics, to explain what they thought was what was going wrong with the world. And G.K. Chesterton wrote in his response was, uh, Dear Editor, regarding what is wrong with this world, I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Now, there's a terrible realism there, because he's saying, I'm not the innocent person here with the bad people out there. He said, there is something wrong with me. And that is the case. That's why if, if I thought St. Matt's was a perfect church when I was looking at coming here as your servant and minister, I wouldn't have come. Because I would have flipped and wrecked it. Because there's a wickedness in my own heart. Right? Now this is the realism, that what sounds like the darkness of the Bible, that Jesus says, it's in here. Yes, I'm the victim, as you are, of various cruelties from outside. But also we are the victimizers. And we need to own the fact that we are the producer of our own deeds and thoughts and not, not say, oh, I wouldn't have done it if you hadn't done. It's odd, isn't it, when you see that the humans, when they're being challenged in Genesis 3, that you can become like God, immediately they stop taking responsibility for their actions. When, when Adam sins and acts in an appalling way, he blames God and the woman, the woman you gave me. The woman blames the serpent. Uh, immediately they're saying, oh, no, not, not, not responsible, like not being sort of adults. You're going to become like God. No, 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 you're going to become an excuse maker. This is the view that the Bible has about what's gone wrong with the world. Therefore, the, the constant mantra in our culture, be true to yourself, be true to your heart, has got a really dangerous edge to it. There's a little bit of truth in it. But as your fundamental guidance, the world is full of broken families, broken companies, broken lives in prison from people who followed that silly mantra to do what is in your heart. Because the Bible says that your heart is the problem, not the answer. Sin is crouching at, our, at the door. It wants to devour you. Let it in and it's very hard to get out. And it always goes on to produce much more problems than you would have imagined. There's just some famous key words on sin in the Bible. Uh, Romans 3.23, what do I know about you? All of you. <laughs> All have sinned. The Bible's a great equaliser, isn't it? It's not the good people and the bad people. We've all sinned. Right? We've all said to God, on your bike, I'll do it my way. Uh, you know, and I've seen it, funerals. That song played. And now it doesn't work that you actually, when the body leaves the building, you actually arrive in heaven. But if you don't, you think, that is the last song you want playing in the background when you stand before God, your maker, your judge and your owner. I did it my way. To which the legitimate answer, well, you obviously don't want to be here where we do things my way. Right? It's a very fine description of what evil is. See, Genesis 3, we're not going to pause and look at it as long as I'd like to, just time it kill us. How does sin work? It looks like a simplistic, silly story. That's only if you're simplistic and silly and haven't read it carefully. Right? Because in this story that a child can understand, it's yes, 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 God has said yes, 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 yes. One no. One no. The evil one comes and says, did God really say? 
You sure about that? Aren't there other ways to interpret that? Eve has a discussion. Adam is there. We know from, from the text that Adam is there but says nothing, which is despicable. Finally, he says, you know what? If you eat that fruit, if you disobey God, you, you will grow. You will be enhanced. True freedom, true fulfilment is found by breaking. You know why God has put that command on you? Because he's evil. He's protecting his own wicked. So what we have in Genesis 3 is how sin works. And brothers and sisters, this is how it works in your life. We can always find a way to doubt what God has said clearly in the scriptures. We lie to ourselves and my life would be better if I did this. And what sort of a God would say, don't do that? What's wrong with him? He's not really good. And lastly, you will not die. It's the attack on the judgment of God. And brothers and sisters, we've talked about this, but I'm so sick of meeting people, sometimes even in churches, who will speak as if because we're modern and enlightened, we can't believe in the judgment of God. Surely God wouldn't be like that. Surely he's kind of nice and sweet like my grandmother. Just want you to be happy, sweetie pie. It's not, by all means, disagree with Jesus on the reality of judgment and heaven and hell. But don't do it claiming to be modern. It's right back there in Genesis 3. It's one of the oldest lies in the book, but it works. You think, oh, there won't really be consequence. I can get away with this. No, you won't. So God really say, nah. This is the way to expansion of life. God is not good. You can't really trust him. And he won't judge you. And the tragedy begins. Friends, that's what sin is. And it's crouching at the door. All have sinned. The wages of sin? Death. Physically, spiritually, and ultimately eternally. And yet the other good news for sinners is Romans 5. God is proving his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So it's serious and it's ugly, but he loves us. That's what's going on. Now, when we live our lives as Christians, we run into the problem that this lady, this lady here, Gloria, uh, I knew her kids as they were growing up. And when uh, Kathy, Catherine, her uh, oldest child, was an adolescent girl. And, you know, there's sometimes there's tension between adolescent daughters and their mothers. That's, that has been known. And there was a little tension in this family. But Kathy genuinely asked her mother one day, and not with a cynical, which it's, said, Mum, do you ever sin? Do you ever sin? Because she just, she lives with her. She's an adolescent daughter living in the home, being bossed around by her mother. And... Catherine told me the story, Mrs. Short didn't. And Catherine said her mother started to cry. She said, Kathy, you have no idea how sinful I am. At which point we said, oh dear, do go and please see a psychiatrist. Get some help. Get your self-esteem fixed up. No, no, no. She understood that even though she was very loving and was, and I can understand, having known Gloria, I can understand thinking, do you ever sin? She's so consistently lovely and generous and kind. But she knew that she did sin. She knew that she struggled like the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 7. The good that I want to do, I can't do. The very evil that I hate, this I do. 
So when we become Christians, we don't suddenly, as it were, get a heart that is instantly perfected. But we, we go to war with it and we struggle to be the people that God has made us to be. And so, even, as I say, even someone as, as wonderful as Gloria uh, just felt the struggle because there's something inside. It's not just the conditioning. The outside cannot help. Bad company corrupts good character, the Bible says. That's why I don't hang with Anglican ministers because the Bible says, you know, bad company corrupts good character. I'm, I'm trying to protect them, sorry. Did you think of it? No, that. But um, this is uh, one of the... The Bible sounds dark, sounds negative, because it's saying we are wicked. There's an evil in my own heart that I need to be aware of and live with and face. And when I find myself in conflict with someone, to keep reviewing myself and see how much I've contributed to making this difficulty more and more difficult. But the, this is a part of a quote, some of you will know, from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was the Russian, extraordinary Russian writer who spent many years in gulags in those terrible prison camps and nearly died a few times himself, came to know Christ, became, went from being an atheist to a believer in Christ while he was in one of those terrible camps. But he came out and shocked. He was finally released and let go into the West and he came out and has got this famous line about that the, the line between good and evil does not lie between this nation is good, this nation is evil, this political party is good, this political party is evil. He said it, it, drives, it goes through our own hearts. Right? And that's, that's where the line is, that within myself and within yourself there is a fight between good and evil, which is real and intense. And in momentary battles we lose, but it's the war that we're concerned about. So the human beings are both wonderful and magnificent and yet awfully broken and we struggle. So people think, don't they, that Christians are saying, hey, we're ever so terribly good, which is exactly what I never hear Christians say. I've shared this before. The only people I ever meet who tell me they're good are people who wouldn't know Jesus if they fell over him, right? Christians are forever saying, like Kathy's mum, you know, we're the ones who know that we need, we need, desperately we need mercy from God. And the wonderful thing that we have in Christianity is this dark reality and yet this amazing fact that God loves us anyhow. I think the reason why people chatter on about how good they are is because they basically think you've got to earn love, particularly from God. So I've got to pretend to myself that I'm good. This is going to make any difference to how he sees me. What the Bible says, no, 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 you are evil. And God knows how unhealthy your heart is and how some of our nicest deeds are just covers for selfishness and self-aggrandizement. But he loves us anyhow, in spite of our foolishness. It's very hard for us to really believe that, to suck that in and drink that in, that God's grace is just so much bigger than my sin. And as we struggle away with it in the first few years of being Christian, the first couple of decades, the first century of being a Christian, he continues to love me. So this is why this particular quote from uh, Keller, the uh, Prezi minister from New York, is, is so loved by so many people. Because this, this is what the Bible is saying to you. You're much more sinful than you could dare to imagine. But you're more loved and accepted than you could ever dare to hope. And it seems to me it's almost impossible to appreciate the second until you embrace the first. Because it's all a question of what has God said? What has God done? But this is the truth about who we are. This is the truth we live in as Christians. 
We know that we're wonderful and magnificently made by God. We know God is at work in our hearts, changing us from the inside out, but we also know that our hearts are infected. And almost anything is possible for us to do on a bad day, which is why Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer, where we ask God to not allow us to be led into temptation. So there's the Lord's Prayer, friends. I've got this, I brought this one from home. Uh, my grandmother made this. I, this was on the home. This is part of the estate for my parents. It's the Lord's Prayer in the old version. And it's just been on the wall. I love having it on the wall. It's for all sorts of memories. But isn't it interesting how Jesus finishes the prayer? The Jesus view of life. Forgive us our trespasses. That is our sins. As we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. So you see what Jesus says? I need my sins forgiven. I'm going to need to forgive people who sinned against me. I need God to protect me from temptation and to deliver me from evil. Can you see the world that Jesus sees? He sees that it is a world where sin is real and the best of men and women are just men and... Well, no, we're not going to blame it on being men and women, are we? It's a mistake when we say... Oh, well, I'm only human. You don't sin because you're human. You sin because you're a sinner. We do tend to say, oh, well, I'm only human. No, but all of us are going to need to ask God for forgiveness. We're going to need to, to ask for help to forgive others who have really hurt us. We're going to need to pray for protection from temptation and from deliverance from the forces of evil because that's the world you live in. It is both beautiful and awful. And humans are both magnificent and wicked, both as individuals and as a group. Sometimes we don't see it and then life goes along and suddenly we do something unthinkable and we are appalled because we've finally caught a glimpse of what God knew was always in our hearts. But the lovely thing with God is he loves us anyhow. But the Lord's Prayer, every time we pray it, should remind us that we are involved in a dangerous journey on the way home. So, why don't we finish by praying uh, a prayer. One of the the most powerful expressions of confession of sin that's so powerful that it almost overwhelms us is when King David, who is God's friend, the man with a heart after God's own heart is how he's described, when in a terrible series of events, commits adultery, steals another man's wife, murders the husband, not even in good, clean murder himself, he gets others involved so that they're all made part of this messy business. Because the thing with sin is, right, it will always cost you more than you can imagine. So David was lazy. He was supposed to be out with the army but he left the army on its own, he led others. That's where he belonged. The king of Israel belonged out leading the armies, defending the country. But he, he, he'd had a hard life at that stage. So he stayed back at the palace. He's bored. He's got time to kill. He wanders on the roof of his palace, in, as it says in 2 Samuel. He sees a woman having a bath. She's beautiful. He calls her up to his place. We don't know how much choice she would have felt she had. In those days when the king called and spoke, you tended to have to obey they have sex. She, in the end, gets message back to him that she's pregnant. 
So he drags her husband back from the warrior. His, her, her Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, was one of David's right-hand men. He gets him back from the war to have sex with his wife, so maybe they can cover up the timing of the pregnancy. But he won't go and have sex with his wife because the rule was that when the, the armies of Israel were out fighting, no one should just live as if it's peacetime. David gets him drunk. He does all sorts of things trying to get him to go and have sex with your wife. But Uriah sticks to the, the standard that was, that was uh, at work then. So in the end, David has him murdered. Um, so he just was a bit lazy, a bit bored, a bit lustful, a bit adulterous, a bit murderous. And he's a man who has a heart after God's own heart. The prophet comes and tells him the story that you know. He then writes Psalm 51. It's a scream of pain when he's suddenly seen who he is. He suddenly caught a glimpse that he was the sort of man that he hated, an abuser of the weak, a robber from those who had less than him. And he writes this very powerful psalm. And then he has instantly announced that his forgiveness is complete and perfect. So I thought we might use David's prayer as a confession of our sin. Um, uh, so let's, um, is it should pop up on the screen if we're in luck. Yeah, okay. So let's pray it slowly. It's just Psalm 51 with a couple of words changed to us rather than me because David writes it of himself. A good man, magnificent looking, magnificent in many ways and yet capable of terrible evil like us all together. O God, have mercy on me according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge me. Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You, in the inner part, in the secret place. Against me of my evil and guilt, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me know joy and gladness again. May my inmost being be healed. Fill me with new joy. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from my deep guilt, O God. You alone are my God, my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. I will trust your promises of forgiveness and the power of my King's death for sinners. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have no secrets from you and that we have no need to keep secrets from you.
Thank you, our Father, that you know us in our weakness, in our brokenness, and in our sinfulness, and that you have shown your great and passionate love for us in sending your Son to reveal your love and to die for us. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you that you are quick to forgive. Thank you that you are able even to forget our sins. Help us, Lord, to walk with great joy in our forgiveness and yet with great carefulness that sin is a great danger to us until we arrive safely at home. Help us to walk wisely and joyfully this week. Amen.